Aloha, and welcome to Overthinkers Anonymous. My name is Agent 37, and I'm an overthinker. And currently, I'm overthinking the simulation theory, the idea that all this reality that we currently exist in could just be a product of very sophisticated code, and that this was all programmed into being by a programmer or a team of programmers. I don't know, my, my intuition tells me that it's just one mind behind all this and that maybe you can call that mind God. Maybe God is the programmer and the player of the simulation. Um, what do you think? I'm blown away by you. <laughs> That's my honest opinion. You are a, you're a vortex of insight and the way you see the world is something that fascinates me. And I suppose as Agent 37, um, I should try and introduce myself as, as a philosopher. And I'm an overthinker. Uh, if the name is any indication, I think I'm supposed to be. And I'm going to do my best to try and keep up with Agent 37 as he goes down the rabbit hole after taking the red pill and probably having a lucid dream at the same time. <laughs> so I'm very excited to be talking with you, Agent 37. Thank you so much for having me on your beautiful little podcast. And I'm interested interested to see what we're going to overthink about. Thanks for coming on, uh, philosopher. Uh, I love that name, by the way. It's it's almost, you could call it a superhero name, but it's also almost just a very mundane title that's just a very common word that is used and thrown around a lot and has a lot of different connotations to it depending on the context, right? But philosopher, I, I mean, wow, it has gravitas to it. Well, I love that you said that and you started off with this because you're right. Uh, philosopher is a very mundane and almost boring word for most people. And you would think, well, why is this guy, you know, choosing philosopher as his sort of superhero name across from this amazing Agent 37? And uh, the reality, though, from what I'm learning is that philosophers should be superheroes in our society. And they're greatly undervalued um, compared to like ancient Greece, even. We're in a real low point for it and i sort of delved into i think the greatest philosopher of all time and i truly think this guy is an absolute real life incredible heroic personality and nobody knows about him but he inspired me to really treat this label philosopher in its true and incredible depth like it's almost like the most incredible thing you could you could basically pursue is is this philosophical path of wisdom and if you do it right, it leads you on these sort of Joseph Campbell type hero journeys where it makes the, the sort of uh, extraordinary in life come out. And for me, I'm sort of on that kind of journey. And uh, it's because of this amazing goal that I've sort of been inspired by philosophy to pursue and has led me down this rabbit hole basically to you. <laughs> Fascinating. It's almost yeah. as if it's almost as if the the pathways that led you down this rabbit hole were pre-programmed by some higher force, some higher philosopher, <laughs> some higher philosopher. Because I guess you know it's a pretty common thing to say in philosophy that 
you could almost you could almost be a dictum at this point but like people say uh thoughts create and shape a reality or some variation of that mm-hmm. and um you could say philosophers are you know what what did we say earlier like professional overthinkers or professional thinkers because I, I think i don't want to say professional overthinker because i think overthinking is likely more so a tool that philosophers use because to call them just thinkers or overthinkers would be i think simplifying it too much because there's so much more than that well they're supposed to be lovers of wisdom and uh, if you're good at it you're kind of like alan watts and you're sort of taking the mundane and making it into this these like these thought these thoughts sort of like jungle gyms these thought circuses where you're like oh my goodness i've never i never thought about it that way before and your whole world just like transcends like you just you're taking into a new dimension like wow if that mundane thing like that tree over there is this incredible you know sort of conception of infinity what else my reality is like that and i'm just missing it and in a way that kind of unlocks the door to you releasing the true potential within you and technically a real philosopher according to this amazing guy i'll just say his name well maybe i shouldn't i'll leave it as a mystery for now but he's he's a philosopher uh a couple hundred years old and he said within all of us is this super mind it's kind of like the notion and the notion is your connection to what he calls uh infinite negation which turns into infinite sublation where everything becomes one. But the way he explains the mechanics of it, it blows your mind. It's like, how does this guy know this? It's it's like how he writes it in these books. And they're it's like in plain English, right in front of you. It's like, you can read it. It's for free on the internet, but it's, it's wrapped in this. It's like wrapped in this mystery. It's like a mysterium. And then as you get into it, and as you break through the boringness of the words, you start to realize that this guy is telling you the secret of life. And he's saying that the only way to get into it is through genuine philosophy, not the fake sort of philosophy we have today. That the philosophy we have today is like this. It's child's play compared to what he's talking about. He's says genuine philosophy is transformative and is based on this dialectic. And it's um, it, it leads you to think in transcendental ways that constantly generates the moment anew constantly like being in the present and i'm like this is the most incredible thing in the world like how did this guy how do people not know about him and so for me i've been really inspired to to sort of think more deeply maybe it's overthinking maybe it's just wise thinking but i've i've really been inspired to take that hero journey down to this this true incredible depth of who we who we really are past mm-hmm. these service facades right and your podcast is all about that as a philosopher you know i consider you a philosopher too agent 37 your depth of thought is incredibly inspirational to me and um whatever we talk about i just feel like it could go layers and layers and layers and uh well thank you Uh, likewise i i feel the same way about our my conversations or I feel the same way about you and what you bring to our conversations off the that happened off the record but um <laughs> I want to go back to what you said about how Alan Watts takes these mundane things and presents them in new ways and new lights because I learned that technique in my poetry class or multiple poetry classes actually under Christine Stewart who's my professor at University of Alberta 
um, the concept of defamiliarization is the idea that you can present things in a strange and or unfamiliar and or unconventional and or out of the box way to people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you allow them to see things from a new perspective, as you mentioned, say like with a tree, how a tree is a system of parts that work in unison, right? In, in harmony and conjunction with each other in order to sustain itself and to sustain other trees in within its ecosystem, which is super fascinating. They're like computers that like, you know, how, how could there not be some kind of higher dimension of intelligence to existence when you have trees that, you know, supply resources to other trees that are in need uh, based on just the, the roots, the, the system of roots that allow the trees to communicate with each other, kind of like not too uh, dissimilar from the internet and how, you know, uh, telephones work, right? And anyways, mm -hmm. de defamiliarization is a poetry concept or a concept that is an artistic concept and artistic technique. Uh, and it's also a poetic technique that breaks convention and it, it defies expectations and mm -hmm. it makes things memorable. It makes the experience of poetry more memorable. And I, I've applied the same technique to my filmmaking and my photography and my writing, mm -hmm. my prose writing, uh, and also podcasting. I love, I love just examining things from a new light or presenting things in a new light, uh, putting my own spin on things that maybe a passing trend that, or, or, or uh, something that, what am I trying to say? Something that has already been known, that, that has already been understood by the public consciousness to the point where it requires no further examination. Yeah, there's like no more curiosity. And in, in some ways, is that maybe why we have this resurgence of superheroes in the last 10 years? Oh, to, to kind of liven up and, and increase our imagination. Like, look at these guys that used to be like hand-drawn cartoons are now 3D, fully, almost realistic looking. And now we're almost, I think the next step is to basically go into VR and start playing them while the movie is happening. Yeah. And it's like this immersive kind of like, like, look, your life is actually incredible, but you have to go on these journeys and it takes real courage. And in a way... Yeah in the last 10 years it's kind of credited like the generation that grew up in the last 10 years <laughs> is going to have some really interesting subconscious motivations and uh i'm what really that? well i mean instead of being like instead of growing up in world war like in the world wars where you're sort of programmed by you know the state propaganda to hate your enemy and and fight to the death and there's like there's like this courage there it's mm -hmm. kind of like a negative uh, super realistic like it's obviously war but it's, it doesn't have this i don't know how to describe it. it's like superheroes bring in this this sort of purity that it's always going to be a happy story at the end of the day because they save the day and you have this whole generation coming in saying it doesn't matter what the challenges are you know there's a way around them and we're going to solve them and it's going to be like this generation of inspiration and there's this this subconscious sort of like uh unstoppability to it you can't really get them down whereas maybe the generation the other generations before this were more of i don't know 
Well, I don't know how to describe the other generations, but they're not. There's there wasn't as many superheroes as there are now. <laughs> and um, I will have to admit, you know, as much as I kind of went high level with the philosopher concept, I have a caveat to it to 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 add, which is the reason why I didn't want to pick a superhero is I'm I'm torn between four of them. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'll just kind of say them and see if you even know what who they are. Yeah. But first one I would say is Goku. Second one is Dr. Manhattan. Third one is Superman. And fourth one is Rick Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> That's a potent oh, combination. Wow. What a list. Yeah, that would be my dream team, actually, of you know, people, my superhero Avengers squad would be like even just them four or three of those four would be enough. They're powered, like powerful combination of uh minds and just brilliance there they're I'm not philosophers sure in their own right yeah and i'm not sure they all have kind of contradictory points so having them all in one one mind is a little bit interesting it's, it's interesting you have, to navigate you have but... superman and sorry the first one was was who again was uh, a guy named goku oh, goku so you have goku and superman who are like the 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 yang is yang the lighter side the bright side, yeah. The bright the, side, the, the the positive part of the duality. And then you have Dr. Manhattan and Rick Sanchez who are more on the nihilistic, darker darker side, I would say. Not that Dr. Manhattan has, you know, the, I'm not saying Dr. Manhattan really subscribes to any specific philosophy because he's, he's more so just like, he, I, don't, I don't say, I wouldn't say Dr. Manhattan is a nihilist necessarily, but he's just very real to the, to the fact, to the point, right? Very just no sugarcoating like <laughs> yeah. there's no difference no discernible difference between uh a, in terms of numbers of cells or whatever the, the quote was between a like live body and a dead body like boom mic drop how cold what a cold motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> well he, he he did warm up he fell in love right like when he fell in love he was inspired and for his worldview he was like wait a second how is that possible and it blew his mind so he's this really weird combination of things just like Rick Sanchez, he's not an, he's not like completely nihilistic and hopeless. He loves his family. He he'll do anything for them. He always does the right thing in the end. Yeah. But he's on the way there. He gets a little bit. Uh, he gets a little bit. <laughs> it gets a little bit interesting. So he's. He, they both have this this bright side. They're both great and positive, but their methodologies are unconventional, and they're just they're just grappling with the reality of of nature, that it is yeah. this. It is this kind of like, you know, it's not like a Teletubbies kind of, you know, show. It's more like when you deal with reality, you can triumph. But the challenge is part of the journey. You know, it's what makes it meaningful. And they were taking on the greatest challenges. Like Rick Sanchez was, I don't know, he's he was wanted by all these intergalactic consortiums of himself in parallel dimensions because he was doing things that were... It's so on the nose because it's it's like one man's war against himself or against maybe to take it even further, maybe into a like Jungian, Freudian sense, uh, one man's battle against his own, his own ego or the uh, different incarnations of himself. Because yeah. he's just that he's he's taking uh, these trips down through interdimensional reality and he's facing down other versions of himself but they're, they're all him, you know, it's, 
interesting. Right. There's, there's lots, this works on so many levels too. Um, because yeah, again, like when, when people say, you know, you're your greatest enemy, that is, that works on so many levels, right? In terms of uh, how like, even tying it back to the Buddhist dictum of we are all one, mm-hmm. you know, we are all fighting against ourselves when we say like, oh, there's, you know, oh, I'm, I'm this and you're that, and I'm, I'm part of this group and you're part of this group. And we don't like your group. It's this, you identify by these, frankly, arbitrary concepts. Mm-hmm. And then you use this to distinguish yourself from other people. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a matter of being, being super, uh, superior to other people, mm-hmm. you know, or, or being the haves versus the have nots or, and, uh, or the ego driven versus the, the ones who look out for the collective or the self-serving versus the subservient or whatever, you know, whatever dichotomy you want to use. Am I making yeah. any sense? <laughs> yeah. You're going deep into it. You're actually picking up on these dialectics, what are called dialectics really oh, well. Wow. And it is this interesting contrast. And I'm kind of wondering, why did you choose a- agent 37? It seems more like Nightwing is the character agent 37 is for those that don't know is one of the aliases of Nightwing or Dick Grayson, uh, the first Robin in the mm-hmm. Batman mythology. And I just feel that compared to his other aliases, agent 37 sounds more, more suited for a dialectical conversation, but also Nightwing is more so my, what I want to be known as when I go outside and fight crime. Mm. Whereas Agent 37 is more for shadow, my shadow work or uh, my work in the shadows, if that makes sense. And like you can Batman kind of side. I guess so. Well, Nightwing would be more my Batman persona. Uh, maybe Agent 37 would be more my detective uh. persona, my detective uh, alter. If you want to use, well, maybe we shouldn't use uh, dissociative identity disorder terms. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I, I mean, definitely like your. <laughs> I mean, well, you, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I just want to say, like, identity is a very complex phenomenon. And to assume that we are only our egos, that we are only, you know, one aspect of, of who we really are, is to completely ignore and bury and completely cover up the other sides of ourselves that often go neglected and often manifest in negative ways or or unruly, unpredictable, unwanted, undesirable ways in the future. But uh, that's another another train of thought. We don't have to go into dissociative identity disorder because I, I, that's that's most of what i know about it <laughs> it's well, a very complex disorder but i don't mean to appropriate like i'm just being very conscious of you know appropriating language that is associated with uh mental disorders because like, i don't i don't like it when people say like oh i'm the weather is so bipolar today you know so i was just overthinking and uh, taking a step back and ensuring that i didn't make any verbal missteps <laughs> well you're super conscious like even i haven't spoken to you in quite a while but in the in the interim time it does seem like you've done quite a bit of overthinking and that you're on a journey 
and you're still mm-hmm. on the, this journey of you're, you're trying to do this, you're trying to figure something out. And even now with your, you know, agent 30, as agent 37, you're trying to figure out something profound and you're, you're trying to put it into words and you're making this podcast. You're trying to get a hold on this really deep ever, ever, you know, sort of present depth of reality. And the way that you're going about it for me is like, you're, you really are like this detective. You're trying to find these connections and it's leading you somewhere. We're calling them overthinking because you can follow them for infinity. Like, it seems like if you really haven't opened enough money, you're in tune with this, this, this gravity of mystery, you could go down these like overthinking paths for infinity and they sort of branch out and they interconnect with everything. And if you're not careful in your finite form, you can get sort of uh, lost in it. But at the same time, that's part of the mystery. That's part of the beauty. That's what, what can make it beautiful. And so when you picked, you know, when you were explaining Agent 37 here, I kind of thought it does encapsulate you. It encapsulates the journey you're on. Yeah. hundred percent. Like, for sure. The, the um, question is, what are you trying to figure out? Could you put it into a sentence? I'm trying to figure out the limitations to reality. And okay. you know, like to my reality anyway, because I feel like most normal people, I don't want to say normies, but neurotypical you know, normal people um, just don't have that that infinite reach, or that that they they just tend to have this this default mode of thinking, right? The default mode network, as mm-hmm. they say in psychology, and um, it limits and restricts reality for them to make it digestible, and you know perceptible and tangible within their reach and it makes things convenient to them and people who go through psychotic breaks like you know myself or who have gone through psychotic breaks like you know one of my heroes is Carl Jung and he he spent I think better part of two decades or at least two decades I I might be misremembering uh 15 years um writing this this manuscript called Liber Novus, which is also known as the Red Book. And it's basically a manuscript that maps out, you know, effectively maps out his psychotic journey uh, through the collective unconscious, through different archetypes, through dreams, through um, narratives that he create with these different aspects of himself, these different size of his personality Mm. um and essentially trying to figure out the boundaries and the limitations of his own reality and realizing that there are no boundaries and limitations to reality it's all infinite and it's it's too much for the mind to grasp so you know as joseph campbell says the mystic and the madman swim in the same waters but the mystic knows how to swim in those waters and the madman doesn't so the madman drowns. Wow. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Well said. I, I when I mentioned Joseph Campbell, I wasn't sure if you if you knew him. But oh, you the do. other day. Yeah, I, I love Joseph Campbell. Uh, I love the hero's journey, and um, yeah, Joseph Campbell is a man. You know, I'm thinking. <laughs> the more we talk, the more I talk with you too. I'm, the more I'm thinking. You know, 
I feel like the, where the world is heading right now, we need more people like you to speak up. And I know in some of our other conversations, you're, the true depth of your thinking kind of comes out more. Um, and it's, it's, you know, the world isn't really ready for all the things we have to say. But I think we're heading there. I think we're heading in this direction where the, the mental realm is going to be really stretched because mm-hmm. the boundaries, these sort of Jungian boundaries that he was exploring or trying to transcend or, or showing were illusions, that's going to happen to us as a species pretty soon. I think in the next 10, 20, maximum 30 years, we're going to feel all material limitations disappear, like virtually all. And what that does, if you if you really understand what you already mentioned, like psychotic breaks and stuff like that, dissociative disorders, um, you know, the madman instead of the, the mystic or the wise man. If you have your boundaries dissolved and you don't have some kind of integrity in your identity holding you together in infinity, you're going to do some pretty wild things. In fact, you're probably going to have a, a break from reality itself. And the definition of a break from reality is psychosis. That's what it is. When somebody breaks free from reality, they, they become unhinged. And all these, these things in the mind that might not even be anchored to physical reality suddenly feel real because they're, they're on even footing. And so you start questioning, and this is an often a, a symptom of psychotics, of those who go psychotic, is that they don't know what's real. Is this thing really here? Will I really die? Am I even here? Like even time starts to warp. It's like completely... Yeah. A free you're, space. You're drowning. It's it's exactly like drowning, and you're trying to reach for some kind of float floaty, some kind <laughs> yeah. of flotation device to keep you afloat in your head above water, but you don't know what's real enough to hold on to, right? Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. You pull apart, and this is why this comment you made about Young was so in the river was so apt, is because the same exact conditions of infinity where you become unhinged and you become disconnected from reality or reality loses that sort of uh, grounding Mm -hmm. that could be super negative but it could also be incredibly positive i think that buddha jesus these incredible uh spirits i guess you could say of insight and, and wisdom and this deep connection to the divine and profound these guys i think did have psychotic breaks but they channeled it. They were able mm-hmm. to have that mystical wisdom that allowed them to swim in these infinite waters. And that's why they were able to say these profound things that often look contradictory to us. Carl Jung calls them, uh, calls it mythopoetic imagination. I really? What you're, what you're talking about. It's just that, that fanciful, fanciful, unrestricted, uninhibited childlike state of wonder and curiosity that you engage in, in a waking state that you would probably be engaged in in a dream state and in dreams it's, it's fascinating to make the to make the distinction that you know in dreams you you tend to accept in yes and like in, in improv the the there's a concept called yes ending so you mm-hmm. you go with the flow of your other your co-performers or your co-performers is, is that the right term your the other people that are on stage with you, they they might set up a scenario and you yes and you say yes and and then you add on to it what you want to add on to it to continue mm-hmm. the scene mm-hmm. yeah but um in real life we assume these roles that are you know that we we reintegrate with our egos and we we become our egos mostly for the day you know we we play the part like oh okay i'm i'm jonah i'm i woke, I woke up my name is jonah i'm 
so-and-so and I'm, you know, I'm a university student or whatever it is. Like for years, I, I, I played that role of being Jonah until I had a psychotic break and I realized, oh, wow, this is just a role that I'm playing in society and society is just a game and we live in a simulation and nothing is real. And you I'm remember that? Um, yeah, I, I've had, that's basically, <laughs> those are the broad strokes of, of the kinds of revelations and epiphanies that I've had during psychosis. Um, let me, let me float, a, float out this concept to you, uh, philosopher. Uh, Agent 37. Hypersanity. Have you heard of this? No, please tell me more. It's, it's the idea that it's not, it's definitely not, it's not a common term that people use, but um, say, for example, one person's madness might be another person's truth, or it might just be the truth. And uh, people who are in these default mode networks in which they're inhabiting the role of the ego and playing out their nine to five, you know, jobs and, and playing their assuming roles of, of parents or lovers or, you know, DJs or writers or photographers or whatever, whatever it is you do and you identify with it, you identify with how much money you have, you identify with like your material possessions. And it's almost a, a parallel to the, the madman who's drowning there. You know, we tend to do that with our, our material objects and our, our roles that we play. We, we tend to try to grasp onto things that are real that we, that we can identify by. And that's what attachment is in, to the Buddhists, right? Like in, in Buddhism is like, they say let go of attachment because none of these things are all fleeting. None of this is the real you. And that, that to some people is a psychotic thought. The idea that there is no real you or the idea that there is no true ego. The ego is just an illusion. Mm -hmm. And what's, what is real is the experiencer, is the soul, is the, uh, the player and the programmer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I guess what did would you call it? Uh, Carl Jung called it the mythic imagination, or what did he call Mytho, it? Mythopoetic imagination. Mytho okay, that's what you have. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I feel like Agent Thirty Seven. You need to get to the forefront of, of a movement of some kind to prevent our species from having a psychotic break and then becoming the madman and instead become the mythics or the mystic swimmer. Because what you're talking about hypersanity, it's like you have had an experience that is so profound but completely underrated in our society and as we head there as we trudge there there's this contradiction coming between the normal uh people who are sort of grounding themselves in these safe concepts of finitude and nine to five jobs and and that's what holds their identity stable and between this exponential technological increase of artificial intelligence, CRISPR, becoming immortal, you know, having super high IQ, merging with machines through Neuralink. Like this reality is coming incredibly quickly to these people and to me and you too, but they have no idea what's coming. And it's like, when you don't know what's coming, that's when it catches you off guard. And that's yeah. when you really don't know how to swim. Yeah. I've, I've been trying to build my own following, but it's never been that grandiose uh, to the point where I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save the world from having a collective psychosis because I am a, a prophet, and uh, <laughs> with a with a god complex. I'm just kidding. 
well, about, I don't that, know that, about the last part. I don't have a God complex anymore. You have, you have a hyperdimensional complex, and that's super rare. I, so I, I feel, some people would call it insane, but I call it hyper sane. Yeah. I mean, you're navigating it right now. It's like the calm before the storm in a way. Right. And I, I feel like it takes an immense amount of courage to navigate that landscape. And in some ways, lucid dreams, these kinds of things we've talked about before, it's your training. It's kind of like in the hero's journey where, you know, you kind of cross the threshold and then you're sort of in this new world and it's unfamiliar and you can't go back to the old comfortable world. You have to keep moving forward and you have to go through this series of called trial and error, right? Where you have to hone your skills. And as you're basically making this podcast, exploring ideas with uh, minds that are a little bit more philosophical and willing mm-hmm. to engage with that depth and break out of the nine to five mentality, you're, you're putting it into words in a book. You know, you're taking all these avenues to kind of hone your craft. And then I'm feeling, well, where is this going? If you're a superhero type, you know, I don't know if people call superheroes God complexes. They just really care about helping people with their talents. And I kind of feel like you have one and you're just figuring out how are you supposed to do the most amount of good with this being little old Jonah in a human body, you know, doing these seemingly ordinary human things. So I don't think it's necessarily has to be a God complex. It doesn't have to be a selfish thing. It could be, you know, it's kind of scary when you go into those, those realms. God complex is very grandiose. So just let's, how about delusions of grandeur? Delusions of grandeur? Superpowers. Superpowers. That's the answer. Yeah. (laughs) At the same time, at the same time, people have done great things just because they want to help other people. And they say when you go into a psychotic break or you lose touch with reality, it's the scariest thing ever. And people actually lose their minds, right? They actually don't, some of them don't come back mm-hmm. or they develop schizophrenia or something happens, especially people who take ayahuasca and are sort of predisposed to those things. It's like you're sort of a shaman. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about that. Definitely. Um, I'm looking at, Right now, I'm looking at the uh, the actual definition of hypersanity, mm-hmm. and um, it seems to be associated with, I believe, a writer or a psychiatrist, oh, a Scottish psychiatrist named R. D. Lang, presented madness as a voyage of discovery that could open out onto a free state of higher consciousness or hypersanity. For Lang, the descent into madness could lead to a reckoning, to awakening, to breakthrough rather than breakdown. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, that's a great way to put it. I, I have nothing else to add other than, yeah, I think it's just a matter of being able to see reality for its infinite nature, but also not letting that drive you into a state of madness and being able to say like the way Thanos, you know, was able to withstand the the power of all five infinity stones in his infinity gauntlet so so too must you you know when experiencing a state of hypersanity must be able to withstand the truth of infinity of endlessness Mm -hmm. and truth Mm -hmm. the truth of that and how it's not it's not insane it's not untrue and that's one of the things that that drove me to madness is not having any positive feedback that reinforced the fact that 
what I was experiencing was something that was true, just not something that is generally or commonly observed or experienced. What do you mean you didn't get any positive feedback? Like, what, what did happen? Oh, people just thought I sounded crazy. Like I, I have, like I, I had a, a Messiah complex or a God complex, or uh, was uh, experiencing some delusional, grandiose thinking, and uh, you know, just stuff that isn't quote unquote neurotypical or normal, but is also characteristic of a manic episode or a psychotic break. Mm. And so in a way, the negativity sort of reinforced the negative side of the dialectic of that intensity instead of bringing out the potential positive. And so in a way, it was trapping you in their fixity, in their projections, and you couldn't get through or you couldn't mediate it. So it became real. I had nobody to not just back me up to the people who thought I was going crazy, but also I had nobody to reinforce to myself that what I was talking about wasn't crazy. Um, and I mean, crazy is in this, in this sense is like very subjective. Cause like, again, one person's crazy is another person's awesome. <laughs> or, you know, like, I think it's awesome. I think it's, I think it's rad as fuck. <laughs> and I think, I think more people need to tune into this frequency of thought because it, it's quite liberating actually, because I don't want to say that I know more than, than most people or that I know more than the next person. I feel like everybody knows these truths deep down on some level, but they've just chosen to play the role and, and to assume, assume their identities or assume the roles that they play each day and assume that they're their egos uh, and essentially restrict themselves in the limited mindset that is the default mode that is the rat race that oh this reminds me of that david foster wallace quote mm-hmm. um are you familiar with that with that quote i'm talking about um which one i think it's from this is water uh david foster wallace it, this is water is a commencement speech that he gave um so he to to shorten it because it's a very long quote but oh here's a short version um he talks about what real freedom is and he says the real freedom real freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day that is real freedom that is being taught how to think the alternative is unconsciousness the alternative is the default setting the rat race the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Ooh. Yeah, David Foster Wallace. <laughs> it's very it's very interesting, this concept of freedom, but it's also very interesting what you said about the restriction of your freedom when you were in that state, that the abundance couldn't come forward. And, and when you tried to bring it forward, it was transmuted into the negative. And it, was, it, it wasn't been, reinforced. It was, it was, I guess, to use, you know, concrete, uh, black and white psychological terms, like behavioral behaviorism terms, uh, it was punished because it was met with doubt and skepticism and misunderstanding simply because I can't really blame the people who, who doubted and judged because they didn't have, they didn't have the, uh, the frame of reference for what I was saying. And again, I'm very careful about sounding too grandiose or sounding too out there with this because 
I'm very sensitive to being rejected that for, for that reason, for being outcast or being, you know, ostracized for having these infinite thoughts <laughs> or uh, infinite scale revelations or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call them. I don't know what to call it. Mythopoetic, mythopoetic gems of, of my own truth. My own words of the truth. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So it's better to use metaphors like uh, being the, how, you know, we're all one is pretty, nobody, nobody gets, it's not controversial at all, but it, it's very aligned with the kinds of mythopoetic revelations that I had. Uh, one of the revelations that I had is that, you know, what if, what if, and I propose this as a question instead of a, a statement, but like, what if God oneness at the start of the universe was just pure consciousness and decided it wanted to experience life as a living being within the universe or within the cosmos, within its space that it inhabits where it exists. Um, what if God was just bored and uh, mm. decided to spur existence out of out of itself or himself or herself or themselves uh, into being just because they were bored. And so they created, they programmed, they, they started the code, which is the word. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's actually kind of, um, I think I've heard about this in the past and that there's this narrative where in order for God to know itself or the ultimate being or the source code or whatever is at the ultimate source of everything can't know itself unless it has an other. It has to have something that is not it in order for it to know itself, at least explicitly know itself. It always knows itself implicitly or within itself. But this, this idea that in order for one to recognize itself, including the Godhead, including the source itself, it has to divide itself. And that division is an illusion, but it's sort of what this philosopher would call the cunning of reason, that it pretends that it's not everything, to allow itself to experience itself as if it isn't everything, so that it can know itself as everything. Wow. That's has this God ever heard of a mirror? <laughs> well, that's you. <laughs> that's you in the mytho mythopoetic imagination. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty... that's one way to know yourself or to, to see yourself is through a mirror. And uh, as Tyler, the creator says, it's hard to believe in God when there are no mirrors around, you know? Interesting. Let's get to the, let's get to the juicy, juicy meat of this conversation. Uh, philosopher, have you ever taken mushrooms, like five grams of mushrooms <laughs> for for example, and stared at your own eyes for a hero hours. Just well, go, go into a hero's dose, hero's journey into your own windows of your soul. Interesting. I was not planning to talk about this, but this is an interesting direction we're starting to get. <laughs> you don't over. have to, but we could if you want to. No, I do, because this is a very... Uh, I forgot about it, and you would think this should be the central talking point of my my. <laughs> But um, I have not done a hero's dose of uh, mushrooms, Agent 37. I have done my very first psychedelic experience was mushrooms. Oh. Uh, I had a very fine Fantastic. Yeah, it was a very gentle way to enter the, the realm. The realm, yeah. The hyper moment, I would call the, it. The mythopoetic realm, maybe. 
exactly. And um, I was with some good friends and it was a very, like who you're with really determines your experience, I Absolutely. find. And, yeah. great. and so they, they helped me feel like I was really like time distorted. A lot of interesting things happened, but I didn't disconnect from reality. But that opened the door to a few other things that culminated in a trip on Iowa, a couple of trips on ayahuasca. And the reason why we started taking ayahuasca is because I started this, this spiritual group of people who were philosophers, philosophers, basically. And the woman I fell in love with at the time, she introduced us to this documentary called DMT, the spirit molecule. And we're like, what's this? So we watched it and they, they said in this documentary, it was the most spiritual drug on earth. And for me, being a very ethical person, I didn't want to do any sort of criminal drugs. I didn't want to do any, you know, cocaine, heroin, anything man-made. If, if, I, if I did it, it had to connect me to the spiritual realm. It had to be organic. And so yeah. that's where I came in and they were using it for psychedelic therapies and stuff. But ayahuasca is the pinnacle. This thing is supposed to connect you with the infinite and mm. put it in a way that's very profound. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, let's do it. So we did it. <laughs> and that's where I- that's where I had my uh, cosmic, my understanding of a whole new world really open up beyond my philosophical intellectual side oh, and got wow. to embody what all these divine inspired gurus were talking about. And that's where I was like, okay, so this is the real world. This is what it's about. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, to be honest, though, I don't know about you, was your first trip positive like the first trips you remember were they positive i've never done ayahuasca but Mm -hmm. uh i i feel like ayahuasca is yeah it is the ultimate just the uh the mother mother load mother bomb mother (laughs) of all bombs mother of all psychedelic bombs into your brain holes uh, (laughs) those a hole in your brain brain holes what am i saying brain holes brain crevices it uh lights it up for sure i'm i'm sure I, i haven't had the experience myself probably never will because i'm bipolar and <laughs> well you're on it already i think you're already there pretty much <laughs> I, I yeah maybe i don't even need it but i i'm fascinated with, with like stories of trips and i'd love to hear your trip story if you don't mind sharing like if, however, however much you want to share you're free to share well, but uh well it's leading to this idea that i think the perspective i learned made me realize that God complex or not, we're heading in this direction where we need people to, to basically prepare for these kinds of realms because, right. because it, it really showed me that there's a, there's a right way to go into that realm and a, and a wrong way. Just like you say with the, the, the ego is not the portal. That's for sure. Yeah. If you like, it was trying to rip me apart. The, the bad part was that I wasn't in a safe environment mm. and we, and we did it with people that we didn't know. And the shaman sort of freaked out. The shaman lost his composure and started abusing one of my friends in the in the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm I'm like, is this real? Like, is this supposed to be happening? Is this guy really shaking? He was shaking my friend because my friend was moaning and sort of disrupting the ceremony. Oh. And wow. so he kind of went and tried to calm him. And, and he, well, my friend's kind of stubborn. He wouldn't listen. And uh, all of a sudden you know, about halfway into the ceremony, he just freaked out and started yelling at him. And then he physically went up to him and started shaking him like in, in the, at the height of the trip. Oh, and we're wow. so, that's not we're like, a good thing to do. <laughs> exactly. I started thinking to myself, okay, wait, 
am I in a cult? Like, who are these people? Am I in a cult? Is, are these guys going to kidnap us? Is this like really ayahuasca? Are we like, I started thinking, am I in danger? Oh, this guy's yeah. unusual. He's not healing my friend. He's probably traumatizing him right now. And I'm like, okay, my friend took the, the ayahuasca tea about 10 to 20 minutes before me. Cause we had to go around in the circle. So I knew whatever he was experiencing, I was, I was in for next. So when he was doing this moaning and stuff, I'm like, okay, it's going to hit me pretty soon in probably 10 to 20 minutes. And then if this guy starts shaking me, like he's shaking my friend, what's that going to do? And yeah, shake uh, up your you world. Know, that's for sure. Yeah. I'm like, okay, now I don't know if we can trust these people. I wanted to get my friends out of there. Like that yeah. was my goal. And so we're like deep into this. I'm like, I, you know, time is dilating. You're, you're, you're trying to focus. You're coming in and out of places. And my friend and I to his, he's my hero, man. Like this guy is a superhero to me. We went out of the room to this little side room and we basically made a little plan and it was hitting him so hard that like when I was looking into his eyes, I said, Hey man, we need to do something. He fainted. He collapsed. Like a wave hit him and he like completely disappeared collapsed to the, the floor and then as soon as his knees hit the floor he woke up and i was in oh, front of wow. him he's like he's like he's like what are you looking what are you doing i said you're on the floor man you fainted and he's like what and he looked around he's like oh he's like oh how did i get here and i was like okay he's tripping out the other guy's tripping out we need to get out of here before i start tripping out and then we can't get out so he literally went back into this room with me pushed off these so-called so shamans, grabbed our friend, literally hoisted him onto our shoulders and drug him out of there, out of that place. And we were, it was the middle of winter. We didn't know where the heck we were. It was like the most crazy thing. And it was really traumatic. We didn't get to enjoy the trip at all. That was my first trip. But we got out oh, of there wow. and we got back to a safe place. And we put our friend to bed. He was completely gone. But me and my other friend looked at each other. He was sitting in a chair at a desk and I was sitting on a chair across from him. And that's where I, I got a brief glimpse of the positive potential where we saw each other. It was the most bizarre thing. And there was a little cat beside me. Oh, wow. I looked at the cat and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm the cat. The cat yeah. is perfectly being a cat. But somehow that perfectly being a cat was like, me being paint, the cat. Let's paint the picture, philosopher. What color was the cat, and what did the cat look like? Was it big cat? Was it a the cat, cat was a little bit of a bastard, actually. Oh, <laughs> really? He had a personality. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it was just there. It was just, just it was just being a cat, and it was so good at being a cat. And you wonder yeah. how it got so good at being a cat. It was like it was, it was already a, rehearsed or something. Almost like this game dynamic that you're talking about. But yeah, I, I got it's, this it's a sexual though, right? It's like I feel like these psychedelic trips put you in touch with the instinctual, intuitive aspect of the human experience, or not even the human experience, but the the cosmic experience. Yes, not just being a human, but being being a cosmos. You know, <laughs> it's it's the intelligence that sort of animates everything. Yeah, soul. It's it's uh, oneness. It's source. It's uh, whatever name you want to put to it. But like that sounds like, nonetheless quite like you could say it was a bad trip and a bad experience but the the picture that it painted in my head of you just escaping from what was frankly a nightmarish situation uh with a shaman that lost his temper and should have his 
shamanic card revoked or whatever credentials <laughs> yeah. or whatever whatever it is that <laughs> certifies you as a shaman um that's just not cool and uh at the very least you could have taken taken your friend to another room or got some got some other muscle to to take them you know gently somewhere else to avoid disrupting other people's trips but it's a very it's a very delicate situation that's for sure um yeah i've always wanted been curious about that but uh yeah sorry go ahead yeah it wasn't well handled but when we got back to the apartment it started showing me this uh the interconnection of everything and the deepness of it and the problem with these states is that when you do try and communicate them you do sound a little bit crazy because you're talking with the dialectic purely in yeah. front of you and i think that's what happened to you is that in some ways you, you you're seeing it but as soon as you try and transmute it into the finite the people around you start they can't come along mm. and you don't remind them of the divinity inside of them you remind them of their fears because you're showing them what they don't understand. Isn't it funny that if I had just said that, oh, I've been microdosing ayahuasca, they'd be like, oh, okay, we got it. We get it now. We understand now. It's okay. You don't have to go to the hospital. It's fine. <laughs> well, here's the I said that. Damn it. I think, I think really though, <laughs> I mean, you're onto it, man. You, you're, you're right that people will trap you. And I feel like the only ones who can escape that trapping at those profound levels are people like the gurus, the, the Buddhas, the Jesuses, the, the Gandhis even, even though Gandhi wasn't quite as far psychedelically. Mm -hmm. They found a way where when they said contradictory or paradoxical things, they inspired people to see the divinity in it. And they didn't see necessarily the fear in it. And it's somehow also the, the complexity of it, just like... Obi-Wan logic, you can say truths that are half truths from a certain perspective. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you need point to of view. Yoda. <laughs> Sorry? You need to become your Yoda. Yeah. You you need to cultivate that inner Yoda. Mm -hmm. Mine is just a baby Yoda right now. But uh Yes, you got a baby Yoda. I have a I have a baby Groot. Uh, no, I have a it's a teen Groot now, so it's a little bit more wise, but it's still kind of ruled by its hormones. Yes. That's <laughs> I'm just telling you the cast of alters that I have in my head. I feel like you're just scratching the surface. Like you're just getting started. And the, and the way the world's going to go is going to be very conducive to like your adolescence. <laughs> I am Groot. Yeah. That was Groot. Just wanted to say hi from the back seat. Hey, how's it going Groot? So when, um, when, the way I conceptualize this is, is uh, kind of like a car. Uh, like my 3D meat vessel is kind of like a, a car. And usually my ego is in the front seat driving, but I have, you know, my, my id, I have my, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of blending the, the Jungian and Freudian conceptions of the, uh, the self, but I don't, I don't think people mind. I'm a, I'm a psych major. I can do what I want. <laughs> I, uh, I, I spent seven years in university so I can sling these psychological concepts on a podcast clearly. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I have my shadow self too. I have I have like alter egos, and I think every complex individual has a set of alter egos, and it's it's okay to have different sides of yourself that you present to different people. And um, I think when you take psychedelics, your ego takes a back seat, and if you're so attached to your ego that 
when that gets stripped away from you or when it straight up dissolves or dies, like hashtag ego death. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I said hashtag. <laughs> Starting a hashtag for ego death. Well, we, we like you said, to tie back to the conversation at large, we are in for a collective ego death because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I believe that ego, the living planet, is trying to take over the world. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 reference mm-hmm. for the ones who didn't catch it <laughs> <laughs> or who haven't seen, who aren't cultured enough to have been caught up on the uh, the superhero <laughs> Superhero films of the past decade. So um, I don't want to get too esoteric talking about ego, the living planet, but you know, it is what it is. It's your podcast. Uh, it's my podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, ego, the living planet is, is taking its last dying gasps of breath because, and it, now that's why it's throwing tantrums and instead mm-hmm. of it's best to send out Trump to try to reclaim its, sovereignty over the human spirit but as you as everybody knows at this point trump the uh ego puppet that he was failed at doing that and uh i don't know i don't know what i'm saying I, well i don't know t- how far i was going to take that train of thought but i don't well, want to get too political uh-huh. talking about trump and uh, i love i love trump as, as as much as i love anybody who has ever existed uh, that's the Christ <laughs> consciousness that I yeah. aspire to have. And I believe Trump is, you know, I don't believe Trump is a villain, but from a certain point of view, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I don't know. I think, I think what we are experiencing as a collective species is the battle between ego and the soul for, you know, control over the spirit. Uh, if that makes sense, over the human experience or over the uh, the planetary existence that we are existing, right? We are we are going to be expanding very soon mm-hmm. to what was it, interplanetary existence. I think the the stage one civilization is yeah. I think we master our planet and our star, and then stage two is uh, I think it's our galaxy, and then stage three is the whole universe. I think. I I don't think it's I uh, I wrote about this in an article actually. Uh, they came from above, and they want cosmic love. Is the name of the, of the article? Okay. Um, I think it's I think you nailed you nailed the um the first the first what is it? Uh, I think it's called the Kirchhoff scale or something like that. Yeah, the Kardashev scale. Yeah, Kardashev. Kardashev. So. I think uh, the no the the first okay the first type type one is a planetary civilization and I think they have to they have to it's basically where we're at actually mm-hmm. um, in which they can store and use all the energy available on the planet and a type two civilization also called the stellar civilization can use and control at the scale of the planetary system. So I guess the solar system mm-hmm. and uh, type three civilization is a galactic civilization and can control energy at the scale of the galaxy. Type four oh. is the entire host universe. Type is the multi-universal civilization can control energy at the scale of multiple universes and be a- <laughs> may be able to create universes. 
<laughs> yeah, we're go- we're probably going to go there if we make it past the first stage. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think I think we just have to evolve past the ego, evolve, you know, transcend the ego. There we go. We use the word transcend. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a good word. I think it's a powerful word. It's just overused and misappropriated. It, it is. I think. I think you're right. And there's not a lot of rigor around the spiritual language. That's why I kind of lost respect. And that's kind of why I gravitated to philosophy because it's a, it's a way of articulating the profound in a way that anybody can do, but it's not hollow. Everything has an ascent, an essence to it, an essential meaning. And that's kind of what seems to be missing because these guys, these gurus go and they, they blow your mind and they, they say simple things and they say, well, if you just grasp this koan or this puzzle, you should get enlightenment. But the reality is they spend thousands and thousands of hours or they have very unique brain chemistry that allows them to access that, that sort of meaning. And I feel like realistically, if we're going to transition our species as a whole past this very tumultuous growth stage into stage one, I think this is where civilizations make it or they don't. We're going to have to master some kind of meta language where we understand these words on a profound level and it's kind of like swimming it's it's what we're using to swim each stroke to to stay in this river of infinity without drowning yeah and transcendence is a good word this philosopher that i've been studying he uses it but he uses it in a profound way in a logical way in a way i've never seen before Uh, and that's yeah i think that's why we should be studying this guy which philosopher is this by the way I wonder if I should just say him. His name is Hegel. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you, you, were, you were withholding that. Why? <laughs> because of uh, neuroticism and pigeonholing. Uh, was, you don't want to be pigeonholed personally. Yeah, and I don't want to be pigeonholed either. By subscribing to his philosophy and dialectics, most people who have tried to tackle his philosophy or his mysterium see themselves, see their own limitations in him. So the collective understanding is that this guy was an idealist. And if he's an idealist, he can't be a realist. He can't be the opposite of idealism. And therefore, he can't be, uh, he can't connect or explain atheism. He can't explain real science. And he's in this airy fairy world that doesn't apply to reality. That's mm-hmm. what he's interpreted as in our epoch. But the reality is that when he says idealism, it's this incredible synthesis of what we consider real and unreal. It is this wrapping up of the inner and the outer the self and the other the infinite and the finite the cause and the effect is every single contradiction and paradox that manifests in the ego to construct a stable reality he idealizes he says this is a process in a mind that has these special attributes of necessity and pure freedom which is supposed to be another contradiction but pure freedom allows you to it allows you to have caprice and choice, but that caprice and choice is aligned with pure reason, which is based on the essentiality and the necessity of all things, which you would think is determinism. But because it comes from itself, it idealizes the process and you can align with that. And then that, that's the only way to true freedom. And that's the only way to stay stable and pure psychosis and maintain a sort of maintain the good is what he calls it. So I feel like, the language we use, like everybody has their own version, you know, the Baba Gita, you know, um, they all have their own language. Bible, but we need Quran. They, they have their own guides, right? Their, their own instruction manuals. 
and including like, psychology. Yeah. I would consider like got, the red, the red book being one of those personal for me personally, it's been pretty crucial guide for me uh, navigating my own consciousness. And I recommend it to anybody who's curious about psychology or Carl Jung or archetypes or the collective unconscious or dreams or symbols. Interesting. Was, was red, that's his masterpiece. Like that's the one he wrote at the end. It's, I think he's, he wrote it throughout his life uh, over a course of 15 years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was never supposed to be published. I think it was just, it just so happened to get out because it was an important, it was deemed to be a very important text just culturally and, and, you know, for psychology as, as a discipline, but it was, it's not, I don't want to pigeonhole it as being a psychology book. Cause it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's almost like a, it kind of reads like a sacred text. Uh, if that makes sense. That's very interesting. There's, there's one thing though, is when we go off into these incredible states of, of hyper-awareness and you know, you're, you're twisting your ego in so many directions where like, you're not sure if you're dreaming or you're in a wormhole, or you're teleported or you're, you're ethereal or you're in a lucid dream or you're in a simulation. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways to reconstruct what looks like reality, but you're not really grounded in anywhere stable that you need something stable and the yeah. ultimate stability that I think all these texts are pointing to, but never quite hit is what this philosopher Hegel distilled as the infinite progress of spirit through pure logical thought. And that's the dialectical motion of pure thought itself. He says, that's the only thing that in itself can withstand infinite creativity and infinite freedom is what basically saves you whenever you need to go, whenever you fly out into the realms of hyperspace and you start losing yourself, it's what can bring you back to the divine thought, I guess you could call it. And it's, it lies at the, the base at all of our consciousness. We just don't know it. But it's there. So he, it is there. And oh, fascinating. It is. And I feel like if our species doesn't uncover some kind of version of this, of what he said, we're going to potentially lose touch with reality and sort of rip ourselves apart by projecting our fears into the other. And then when we do that, we separate until we, we exist no more. And then we kind of have a, uh, well, a not good outcome. But the outcome he talks about is called the good. And I really feel like there's a resurgence in this direction. And you're one of the people that are just naturally tuned into it. Like for some reason, you're open. And you already have like this psychological background that gives you a structure that you're trying to figure out. And that's why I'd be very curious to see how you interpreted his thoughts on liberating spirit through this. I guess, super psychology. He says it transcends normal scientific psychology, but it's probably what's at the the base of the red books. And I'd be curious if you read both of them, if you'd be one of the few that could basically penetrate it. Fascinating. I do think we are, I do think we have some very serious problems ahead of us and that, when people hear very realistic solutions, it gives them a sense of hope that it doesn't matter how big the problems are, we're going to overcome them. So one of these problems is, yes, we're heading towards this sort of uh, disconnect from reality, 
which I'm thinking a new, a new culture needs to be born. Mm-hmm. And this culture, we're calling it spirit or yeah, we'll call it spirit for now. And it's based on this philosopher Hegel. And he describes how the ultimate goal of, of this spirit is freedom and it's freedom from the limitations of its own thought. And that's kind of what our, our society is uh, built upon. And right now there's a lot of potential to be free, but there's an experience I had recently with Uber and mm. Uber sort of, I had a very sort of traumatizing experience with this company. And I don't want to say that, uh, I don't want to say that to really harm the people in the organization because they're just as kind of stuck as the rest of us. But they really did use this delivery experience during the pandemic to not liberate people, but to basically map out our minds and figure out how to make us work more for less. And I was blown away that on on Google, you can find out that they do, they perform experiments on us and they use these apps to sort of map out how we make decisions. So I thought, wow. Are the drivers and the consumers or both? This is to the the drivers, but Uh, they're also doing it to probably consumers and mapping out our our consumer choices so they can sell Mm -hmm. to us more. And to hit the point home more is that they've already expanded into credit cards and debit cards and then they're planning to handle their own currency. Oh, yeah, and Uber, so I became Uber bucks. Well, they call it Uber money. Uber <laughs> money. Well, that's not yeah. nearly as catchy. <laughs> I know. Uber money, like two 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 syllable words. <laughs> yeah, not quite as not quite as creative. Uber but coins. It's just as concerning. Just as concerning. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be a cryptocurrency or what, but if they expand this model of basically exploiting people and their mental states. The future of work, which these apps are supposed to be, is not going to be very good. Mm. We're going to end up in this sort of Elysium kind of situation where we have these basically God humans who have used, you know, CRISPR and genetic editing to basically become immortal and increase their IQ to a thousand and all these amazing things, Ooh. cure cancer, all there won't be any more disease. And then they'll sort of be the rest of us which are being surveillanced by these apps and, you know, all resistance is already factored into these models. And so it's not really what Hegel had in mind for the freedom of spirit. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, I don't want to go down that. Spirit it's going path. down the wrong direction. Yeah. And this might be a test. It's, is it, and, would you say it's a direction of ego rather than spirit? Or yeah. It's, an, it's a soul or a, it's a direction of fear oneness, and limitation. Yeah, which, which yeah. perpetuates the individual, which you could say is the right. ego. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, you mentioned CRISPR. Let's unpack that. Well, if, if people don't know about it, which I wouldn't be surprised if they don't, because nobody's talking about this. This We're is not, a miraculous... Talking about the, not talking about the chips that you buy at the grocery store. We're talking no. about PRISPR. <laughs> this isn't your CRISPR crispy chicken kind of CRISPR. This is your... <laughs> This is your incredible change the entire world and society kind of health technology, which won a Nobel Prize, I think, five, four or five months ago, where basically we figured out eight years ago how we can edit the genetic code and put in whatever we want and snip out whatever we want. Mm. Basically, we can rewrite the human genome in a very efficient way and a very inexpensive way and a relatively safe way compared to what we were trying to do before. Basically, what this means 
is all disease is is some version of genetic trauma or genetic dis-ease. Or a malfunction. And if you, malfunction, exactly. Yeah. It's not healthy. You basically yeah. go into the cell, you take out that unhealthy code and you put in the new code and you've, you've not just healed the disease, you've not just uh, dealt with the symptoms, you've cured it at the root. The body literally rebuilds itself healthily. No drugs needed, no more nothing. It's just literally your body is healthy. Amazing. That's sci-fi. People, it's, it's exactly sci-fi. It's Star Trek. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, this is incredible. And not only that, but we figured out that aging itself is now considered a disease. Why? Because you can cure it. We figured out why yes. our cells age. And now basically it's a genetic problem. Whenever your cells split, it, it snips off a little bit too much genetic, genetic code. And by the time you're 80 or 90, it doesn't have enough code to replicate itself and you die. Just write more code. Well, simple. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just for that. you know. When you put it that way, it's so simple. It's, it is a simple oh, we concept. We haven't figured it out yet. Oh, so bad. Well, <laughs> exactly. The fact that the public's not talking about the 4,200 labs worldwide that's basically curing everything that is known insane. to me right now yeah. is, is concerning. And here's the truth, man. The, guy, the woman who started it, the woman who was one of the co-founders, Jennifer Doudna, she had a nightmare one night about basically misusing CRISPR. Oh. And uh, she basically went around and has now for years done, who knows, hundreds of talks, basically saying to the public, you have to start talking about this now and holding our governments to account, shed light on this. And that if you're a scientist working on this technology, you don't just have a responsibility to do the science, you have a responsibility to educate the public on how this is going to affect them. And I was like, who's this woman? Like, this is blowing my mind. She's amazing. And I basically took up her mission. When I heard her saying this, I agreed. I think all the science point that if we don't do something quickly, that this technology is going to be used in a non in a way that's not going to liberate spirit for everybody. It's basically going to follow the trend of economics. Right now, the global uh, the Credit Suez Global Health Report says that in the next ten years, by 2030, the top one percent of humans are going to increase their their wealth by another one third. Wow, unprecedented! Like how people aren't talking about this is blowing my mind. But that means they already own like 54% of the earth's wealth. They're going to increase that to like 67%. It's mind blowing. CRISPR is going to go the exact same way unless we do something about it. There's going to be a very small percentage of people who are going to become immortal and cure all human disease. Mm. And there's going to be some kind of excuse why the rest of us can't have that. Just like right now, you know, it's basically what capitalism is about. The limits of capitalism say we have scarcity, therefore not everybody can have the abundance of life, the abundance of our capacity to produce. And I think that's, that's not a direction we need to go. That's not a direction we even have to go. We can, if we redesign our culture in a wise way, based on these dialectics, we can create a society where we all experience abundance and not destroy our planet and ourselves in the process. <laughs> So that's if we have this new culture of spirit, though, this new wisdom. And then on top of this, we basically need to restructure how we do labor. If we don't harness the human creativity that's within all of us in a wiser way, then we're all going to feel alienated from what we create. And if we feel alienated from what we create, then 
you're not really getting this fulfillment of what spirit is supposed to be doing and recognizing itself in the other. And so we're, we're kind of in these little pens and these apps like Uber are really showing that this is actually likely to happen. I'm not really a, a conspiratorial. I'm not really into the fear-based mongering, all that kind of stuff. Mm. I went into Uber hundred percent optimistic. I was like, wow, you know, you're free. You get to turn the app on and off. You get to do all this stuff. But then I found out the truth and it took me about two years, but it is confirming the worst case scenario that these apps aren't out to liberate us. Mm. And I decided to change my direction. Well, I pivoted to basically tackle this issue and say, if these apps can be used to map out our minds and control us, they can also be used to free us. Yeah. And we're creating our new app, our own app now. Um, to basically redesign the labor force based on these pre- these principles of creativity and then mix that with CRISPR so that everybody has access to amazing potential to create a lack of disease, uh, an abundance of health, and basically to pursue um, basically their highest potential as our species all rises up together to this like you know, break with reality where we're creating as, as much as we're observing, you know, that's where we're headed. If, if that is the option, if that, then we should take that course and we should take that direction. Um, it just seems so obvious, but I, I guess we're just very much set in the ways of the past and in the systems that we've created these, you know, post-colonial economic structures and systems that we have in place, societal systems. It's, it's just the way things have been and people need an alternative, I guess. People need to start discussing this, as you said, in order for this to even be possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, just, to take a, lot, in. a lot to take in. Yeah. A lot of directions we can go down, but I, I, I love that you you all you always include the the element of the triumph, the possible triumph, the potential triumph of the spirit, in spite of the systemic old ways, the the old systems that are in place, the old restrictions that act as barriers to progress, mm-hmm. that that maintain the. I guess the hold that the ego has on the human spirit. When I was working for that app, my overthinking and watching these patterns and, and you're starting to sense, wait a minute, did they do that for this? Are they manipulating me? Like, did they, did they know that I'm going to take this job? And the other guy, you start asking all these questions because you don't know you're kept in the dark yet. They're literally serving your every subconscious impulse, like probably down to the way you turn on a street. Wow. And I'm thinking like my overthinking went into overdrive for the past two years. And it, it really did in some way with my version of like the way I think it, it does have an Orwellian touch. Yeah. But this philosopher Hegel is what has saved me basically and has allowed me to realize that this is just the challenge that we can overcome. And he's giving that language and, and it makes me inspired because it's a, it's an amazing challenge, but the solution is just as amazing. And we just need to show it to the world. 
in, in well, basically before Uber <laughs> rewrites all of our labor laws to try and make this kind of work really the future. <laughs> Hang on, let, let me throw another another factor into the equation. What about sure. automation? What about like sure they're, they're exploiting humans, but what about like the inevitable, you know, up uptick in the uh, use of automation, autom automatic vehicles? Is that something that they're taking into account? Yeah, the the value of human labor is going down because machines are replacing them to do the same work. So if a corporation like Uber doesn't need a human being who needs to sleep and, and you know, complain something, you know, if you don't need to hire somebody like that, you won't based on capitalism. Right. So in a way, if we can be phased out, given the current rules, we will. And that is, is, is happening. And so right now, I think these apps are extracting data on how to manipulate humans, not just to do deliveries or general, general, you know, general work. But I think they're creating a new societal model where even if people aren't working, they can still be, I suppose, kept in a controllable space of some kind. I'm not sure exactly, but um, I'm not happy with how Uber is going about this incredible power in the apps. It could be used to liberate us or it could be used to sort of trap us. And my experience so far is the latter, unfortunately. I don't want to end on a, on a down note. I'm just being realistic that there's a very urgent thing growing in our world. And Uber literally two weeks ago said that they're working with our provinces, our provincial governments in Canada to rewrite our labor laws right now to give us these benefits and these, these, these good things. But all the labor unions are talking behind the scenes and saying if they're successful, they're going to be setting a new precedent that undermines 100 years of labor history or labor law that men had to die, people had to sacrifice for. And so I just want to be very real on this podcast and say, this is a very real problem and it's happening without anybody even knowing. The public is distracted by the pandemic. But there is a, a sort of, you know, I guess if you want to go with the theme of this, this talk a little bit, there is this little group of superheroes that are getting started on maybe launching these initiatives purely out of the goodness of their own hearts to basically say, we're going to do the same thing as Uber, but we're just going to give it all for free to liberate everybody. We're going to be this other side of the dialectic where we're just going to do it not for profit. We're not going to get rich. We're not, we might not even be known because we're trying to do it in private. We're not going to gain any of these things that capitalism says we're supposed to value. We're just going to do it because we believe in a higher spirit. We believe in this kind of oneness and that everybody is infinitely valuable and should get the best that society has to produce. And I think right now this team is, I, I think sort of a miraculous team that can get the job done and show Uber and all the people in Uber that they don't have to act out of fear, that there is this inspirational kind of culture that we can develop where we transcend the limits of capitalism. We transcend the problems that those models were supposed to solve and embrace, uh, I guess, a new paradigm of abundance. Oh, so there's a lot of hope. Yeah. <laughs> Working so, on that. Literally sent that two days ago. What is the what is the solution? What are you going? What are your plans with this superhero team? With this force? Oh, sorry, the <laughs> blender in the background. What are you? Uh, what are your plans with this? With this initiative that you're starting up? This there's three. There's three parts. The first and, and and most important part is the spirit. There's a culture problem that we have, and whoever jumps on this superhero team has to have the right spirit. 
that's why I, I really distilled it down to about, I think we have 14 of us, 14 of us. These people have an incredible amount of talent. They're all smart. They have a lot of credentials. They have a lot of experience. They have all these things, but you can find that almost anywhere in the world. You go to Harvard, it's, it's there in, you know, it's in, in all these corporations, they have the world's best talent, but that's not what's going to solve the problem. These people that are in the superhero group have the right culture inside of them already. They have this way of thinking that I think aligns with the true dialectical structure of the world, what Hegel would call the good. They already have it inside of them. So anybody, as this team grows, anybody that jumps on board to help it grow, which we have to bring on board because in the end, everybody has to be a part of it or else it won't scale. Anybody that we onboard basically has to be a part of this culture so that they hold the spirit because the dialectic will twist people. And if they get twisted, they will turn into the opposite of their intentions. Even good people who mean to do well, the dialectic will twist them into the opposite of what they want. It's just a spiritual product of the pure nature or the pure thought nature of, I guess, the metaphysical reality. So these people have that already. And as we grow, the number one thing to keep the integrity of is the culture. So right now we're educating people on these Hegelian dialectics and making sure that everybody understands how to transcend 26 of them. So there's 26 oh, dialectics wow. in our culture that is ripping us apart. Yeah. So that's step number one. That's the most practical thing we can do because if you can transcend and sublate or yeah, sublate any conflict or any opposite pair or any tension, then you start creating harmony in an incredible diversity of circumstances. That's kind of what a superhero is supposed to do. That's the first step. The second thing now is we basically have to make our own app. And we designed this app on a new pay scheme where everybody is treated on their potential, not their absolute production. Right now, capitalism rewards people based on how much, who produces the most. But it's not fair. It's like if you're born with a low IQ of like, let's say 80, and you can only make 80, you know, you can only make 10 units of something and some CEO with an IQ of 200 can make, you know, a million of them. The compensation shouldn't be a million to the CEO just because they were born with a high IQ. And then 10 for this poor guy that, that wasn't born with that privilege. Because it makes people realize on a spiritual level that we didn't choose these things. This society is, is crazily unfair. And it's leading to these distortions where the weak and, and the ones that are vulnerable get crushed. And the strong have a super ego where they think they deserve it. And, and, and on, some, on some ways they do. Everybody experiences pain. But this new paradigm is about, okay... If you give 100% of your potential, you get 100% of everything reality or society has to offer. Okay, so if you work hard to your potential, not to some absolute standard that's unrealistic for 90% of people, then you are doing the best you can do. You are literally giving your all to this society. You can't right. give any more. And people who try destroy themselves and then they become useless or they become um, broken or they become unmotivated. And then they start projecting their trauma and their frustration on other people and hurting other people. So we are rebuilding this, this labor economy on potentiality metrics where it's based on who you really are, not some kind of standard that's unrealistic or unfair. And this will create a, a society of justice. People will work. They'll give their souls, they'll give their lives to a society of justice because they know it's fair to everybody. So that's, that's the second thing we're going to do. We're going to basically restructure reality along this paradigm, and that will accelerate the spirit because people will start believing that we care about the infinite value of, of, of the individual. Number three, and that will liberate people too. 
The third thing we need to do is basically make it so that the people who are doing the work are in good shape. And that has a lot to do with mind. Uh, mental, that health. Has mental health, exactly. Yeah, but self-care. that has to self-care. But it also has to do with your body. Mm. And they're linked. And right now, CRISPR is this miraculous technology. This is the third thing. This is the technology. If we had to focus on one healthcare technology, I think this is it because it's basically going to disrupt everything that we thought was health. You won't need to take pills. You won't need big pharma anymore. You won't need all these things. You'll need, you'll literally go in for an injection or something. If you trust the system, which if the culture is proper and and has the right spirit, you will, everybody will. Then you get an injection once and you're, you're healed, whatever you have. It's incredible. So basically, yeah, it's, it's amazing people aren't talking about it yet. 4,200 labs around the world are patenting all these DNA sequences to cure and own all of our diseases. It's the right action. It's just for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. It's like the people who have the diseases should basically own the cures because they know that they're developing the cures for the right reason, not to make profit or exploit somebody, mm-hmm. but to literally help people to right. cure the disease itself and liberate people to, to create at their maximum potential, whatever that is, in this new labor paradigm. This new freedom. So that's the three things that this group of superheroes are going to practically tackle. And we're just going to have to basically expand it worldwide and solve every dialectical conflict along the way <laughs> to inspire fear, uh, to inspire, not fear, to inspire a sublation of fear and a trust um, that can transcend the current limitations of our culture. As a poet, as a spoken word poet, I have I, I performed a poem called Cosmic Soul Love a couple of years ago. And one of the lines was that we as a society have to reprogram reality. And I think that's what you're describing here is with your group of superheroes, you're a group of people who have found a new way mm-hmm. and a new, I guess have found new code or have... Uh, maybe not found, but discovered, or maybe found the answers within Hegel's code and now want to implement that into reality, the reality that we all coexist in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you're collectively going to reprogram reality as we know it to, to our advantage, to, our, to the benefit of the spirit rather mm-hmm. than the ego. Um, does that make sense? I'm just trying to tie it back all together to the intro of the podcast about simulation theory. This metaphor could be falling apart as we speak. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I need an outsider's perspective. <laughs> and uh, For me, it's for me, it's always about helping other people. That's the main theme. And so what we talk about, I hope, is uh, conducive to hopefully helping whoever's listening to the podcast, whether you're feeling like you're stuck in simulation theory or you're writing the simulation theory, creating universes, um, or you have a mythic poetic imagination that's trying to transcend or sublate reality and all the problems that look like they're insurmountable, they're really not. And that with, a, with enough overthinking, you can probably get down to some rabbit holes, uh, which will lead to some beautiful and mysterious places that really show the grandeur of our, of our lived experience and who we really are. That's beautiful. <laughs> do you have any? Do you have any final <laughs> thoughts, philosopher? Any, any last 
philosophizations that you wanna you wanna get in before we end off the podcast? I really appreciate you, Agent Thirty Seven. Uh, I really hope you continue to provide this avenue for people who uh, I think see the world in a different way. Mm. And it's a, a huge relief to know that you're in the world and that you have the courage to pursue this path. So thank you very much. I hope you continue being the superhero that you are. <laughs> Likewise, philosopher. I can't wait for uh, another installment of of one of our conversations because uh, we should definitely do it again. I I feel like you know with with us with our dynamic that we have that we we've had over the past couple conversations that we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just too much ground to cover and not enough time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we've we scratched the surface of the iceberg, but there's there's a whole you know a whole iceberg underneath the surface of the water that's still waiting to emerge. It's just waiting for us to deep dive dive deep with some, some ice picks and just carve <laughs> away and see what comes up to the surface. There's this <laughs> there's this saying that is being thrown around. It's like a miracle is happening and we are the spark. Oh, we are the spark. I love that. I love the <laughs> I love the idea that we are beings of illumination lost in darkness. That's one way to say it. <laughs> I, I believe I believe that we come into this world in the dark. And we forget who we are. That's that's one of the prerequisites of, of coming into this world as a human mm-hmm. being or as a, as an animal, is you forget who you really are, which is oneness, which is source, which is the programmer and the player. Mm-hmm. As a player and the programmer, and uh, every everyone around you is just a reflection of you. What do you think of that? That but but that. <laughs> Well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head that in a way we do have to forget that we are infinitely connected so that we can experience what it's like not to be and then bring the beauty out of that. And you're very good at that. You're sort of like a a light, I guess, in this darkness and it's illuminating. So I appreciate you. Thank you. I think it's a good <laughs> note to end off the podcast. <laughs>